How many of you are members here? I want to see how many I'm talking to who are part of the family. How many of you are from other churches? Let me see your hands. Okay. All right. Well, great. Well, I want to say that I love coming to this part of the country. First and foremost is because my mom and dad are from New Jersey and all of our relatives came from New Jersey and there's something I really like about the people of the Northeast and that is you always know where you stand with them. I migrated to the South for about 20 years and had to learn that they, you know, can say one thing and completely mean another. And I thought, where are the Northeastern people that just tell you, if they don't like you, right to your face. I'm good. I can live with that. (laughs) No, it's great to be here. And um, I just want to say I'm truly honored to be back, truly honored to be here with you, Pastor John and Anita. How many of you know, for you at Faith Christian, you have amazing pastors? Amen. I like that. They love you. And um, Lisa and I have been extremely busy the last uh, last several years. Uh, last, as far as the last month go, we just returned from Africa. We had tremendous conference down there. Also, she was in Russia. I was in Europe, and uh, she's leaving for Australia next week. And uh, speaking of my family, can I can I just share with you the people that are so important to me? I know it's been a while since you've seen my family, so here's a snapshot of them. I don't know if you can see it, but that is my smoking hot, gorgeous wife of thirty years of marriage. Last week, I told I told her. Um, I said, baby, if you were single, I would be so on your trail. <laughs> and I am really excited about another 30, 40 years with her, let me tell you. Maybe even 50. I'm, I'm, I'm good with that, you know? Let's make it to 80. But anyway, should Jesus tarry? She is just like good wine. She gets better with age. And so, um, and, and uh, does John Bevere drink? No, I'm not. My grandfather used to say that all the time, okay? So I took that from him. And so anyway, uh, here are our four sons towering above us. And you can see on the far left is Alec. Alec is now 23. And he was the youngest hire for Apple Computer in the state of Colorado. It's pretty funny. He was making D's and F's in school. And my wife was really, really upset. And I said, baby, don't worry. Don't worry. I said, he just thinks differently. The brothers just spoke up and said, dad, he doesn't think. And I said, now, come on. And so he's the youngest hire for Apple Computer. He went from specialist to an expert to a genius and was the youngest genius in the state of Colorado. And um, Apple's motto is to think differently. And next to him is Austin. Austin graduated summa cum laude from University of Colorado last year. He is now head of our marketing department. And then we've got Arden, who is our tallest and youngest. And he's uh, towers above us. He's six foot three. He is an amazing golfer. We were at his state golf tournament last week on our 30th anniversary. And he, uh, he shot like a 67 and a 68 in high school golf. So he's a really good golfer. And then there's Addison, our oldest son. And you can see his wife, Juliana. And And there are our two G-babies. Now, you say, what in the world is a G-baby? I am way too young to be grandpa, so it is G-daddy and G for short, okay? You got it? And um, we need to highlight the G-babies, okay? So here's a picture of Asher. Asher's sporting his new tie. 
And uh, he's got that cute smile on his face, I think, because he's thinking about G-Daddy. And so that's just me thinking. Anyway, and here's Sophia Grace. Now, let me tell you why she's so special. Sophia Grace is the first girl born to our entire Bevere clan since 1967. So you better believe, you better believe I'm her favorite because I'm G-Daddy that gives her anything she wants, okay? So that's my family. And let me say this, the more I fall in love with my family, the more I realize how much God loves us. Can you say amen? Amen. Amen. Now, can you do me a favor tonight? Can you not see me as a guest speaker? Can you see me as family? I'm born again, all right? And... You know, let down the walls. Don't see me as a guest. I mean, you got Papa John, you got Mama Anita, and you got Uncle John, all right? So let's just really receive from God tonight. And tonight, um, I have written a new book, and there's one aspect of this book that I really want to share with you. It is something that I've never had God speak to me so strongly before on a particular issue as he has with this, but he has basically told me every new place that I send you, I want you to speak on this. And so I'm very passionate about it. I believe it is something that some of you may know, some of you may not. I've actually had pastors uh, look at me and say, John, I did my thesis on this in seminary and I've never heard this before. Uh, It is straight from, I'm going to go through a lot of scripture tonight because it is straight from the word of God, but this honestly has changed my life more than about anything God has revealed to me before. And so I'm really believing that it's going to bring a great change, not only in your life, in your family, in what your area of influence that God has called you to. So I don't want you to see me as just speaking a message tonight. I want you to really open up your heart and I want you to listen to the Holy Spirit tonight, okay? And I want you to believe not just for a service, not just for a message, but for your life to be forever changed. Now, I personally believe that God can do this. I believe God can change your life forever in one service. But I don't believe it'll happen unless you ask for it. Okay? It may happen if God just wants it. But I don't like that. I like to ask because he said you don't have because you don't ask. Are you with me? So can we ask him for that tonight? How many of you, how many of you want your life changed forever? Okay, good. All right, so let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, thank you. Thank you first and foremost for the privilege of being your children. You could have made us slaves and that in itself would have been amazing. But you've called us sons and you called us daughters of God in Christ Jesus. And so tonight, Holy Spirit of God, I'm asking once again that you would literally invade this sanctuary. I'm asking that you would reveal Jesus to us greater than we have ever known him before. And as you do, may this be a time in which we go from glory to glory and that our lives will never, ever be the same again. So Spirit of God, you can do whatever you want tonight. Your kingdom has come within us. Your will shall be done in this place on earth as it is in heaven. And for this, we give you all the honor and the glory and the praise and the thanksgiving. And it is in Jesus' mighty, wonderful name. And everybody that agrees shouts. Come on, give God praise. Amen. Amen. Amen, amen, amen. You can be seated. Again, I want to thank you, Pastor John and Pastor Anita, for asking me to come. I'm honored to be in this house. Honored to be with you guys tonight. Amen? Amen. 
and excited because I love the Word of God. Anybody in here love the Word of God? Let me tell you something about what we're doing at Messenger before I open up tonight. At Messenger International, we're, we're, um, you know, 10 years ago, since I haven't been with you so long, I looked at my, I looked at my staff and I said, guys, let me tell you something. We're on television in over 200 nations, but television is not going to change the world. It's only going to influence the world. What will change the world is the local church. And I said, so from this day forward, we're going to focus everything we do to build and strengthen the local New Testament church. Well, it was like the Holy Spirit was in the room and flipped the switch. And now today, 25 or 10 years later, our curriculums are in now over almost 25,000 churches in the United States and 2,300 churches in Australia. After seeing the impact in all these churches, God just really put it in my heart two years ago to really start reaching out to pastors that are in great need globally. And so last year, I looked at my leadership team and I said, we're going to give away, uh, we're going to give away 250000 to books to pastors and leaders in, over, in overseas nations. My wife, the way she described it is, when I said those words, she tasted throw up in her mouth. And God began to do some amazing, amazing, amazing miracles. And as a result, last year, we were able to give away 271,700 books to pastors and leaders in 47 nations. We gave 24,000 books to pastors and leaders in Iran, in Farsi. We gave books to pastors in um, Vietnam, 10,000, Cambodia, 5,000, Thailand, 12,000, Myanmar, 5,000, Egypt, 6,000, Turkey, 12,000, and I could go on and on and on and on. The results were absolutely amazing. The testimonies that we were getting back just literally bring tears to every one of our staff members' eyes. And so this year, God has given us the ability, and we are so excited, and we're on target to do it, to give away over 800,000 books to pastors and leaders in over 40 nations. And it's going to be 800,000 books to 250,000 pastors and leaders in 40 nations this year. And so um, we're really, really excited about that. And I just want to say this, that we do do a golf tournament, if we have any golfers in here, in Colorado Springs. And that is one of the ways in which the finances come in to help us to do this. It's a really, really fun event. Businessmen underwrite it. And then you can come in as a participant and your registration fee goes right to the field. We were able to put $700,000 from this year's tournament into the mission field. Our staff... Uh, we have about $30,000 of salaries to put down this tournament because it's done at the, it, at the Broadmoor Hotel, which is the longest standing five-star, five-diamond hotel in the whole world. And so I think we've got a frame. Jim's going to throw it up there for you. But anyway, we, we take that $30,000 of staff salaries out of another account. So everything goes right to the field from this tournament. I don't see the picture. I thought we had it. But anyway, if you're interested in that, go to www.messengercup.com. So can you do that? write that down if you're a golfer and you think you might want to come and be a part of that? Messengercup.com. I guess we don't have a picture of it because it's not going up. All right. Are you ready for the word tonight? All right. I'm going to open up with a scripture that Paul is speaking about and describes the mandate that was upon his life. It's a very interesting scripture found in Ephesians, the third chapter. And look what he says here in the ninth and the tenth verse. And I want to say this. I'm speaking out of my book called, uh, excuse me, Relentless. But I'm going to talk about one particular aspect of Relentless, and that is on extraordinary. So look what Paul says. He says, my task is to bring out into the open and make plain what God 
has been doing. Through Christians like yourselves, this extraordinary, everybody shout extraordinary. Extraordinary. Shout it again. Plan of God is becoming known. Now notice Paul said, I've got to bring this out into the open and I've got to make it plain. For him to say that means what? There is something hidden that needs to be revealed. What is hidden is God's plan. And God's plan for your life is, one more time, extraordinary. extraordinary. So let me first of all start out by defining this remarkable word. The word extraordinary is defined as this, to go beyond what is usual. It means to exceed the common measure. Now sometimes we can understand better what a word is by looking at what it is not. The antonyms of extraordinary are common, ordinary, or normal. So I want you to think with me about this. The opposite of living an extraordinary life is to live a normal life. Unless it's been suppressed in you, there is a God-given, inborn desire in every single one of you to live an extraordinary life. I mean, to illustrate this fact, look at the most popular movies of all time. If you look at the top 50 blockbuster movies of all time, 80% of those 50 movies are about extraordinary characters, many of them possessing extraordinary powers. What would be some of the movies? You've got Star Wars, you've got Batman, you've got Lord of the Rings, you've got, you know, Iron Man, you've got the Avengers, you've got X-Men, you've got the one I like, Indiana Jones, right? So I want you to think with me here for a minute. The most popular movies of all time are not love stories. Contrary to popular belief, they're not espionage thrillers, they're not war stories, they're not movies about true life accounts. They are movies about extraordinary characters, many of them possessing extraordinary powers. Why is this? Because God created us for the extraordinary. We yearn for it, that's why we go to these movies. Now, this has not been the image that's been portrayed of Christianity. One of the things that kept me from becoming a Christian for so many years was the image that was portrayed. I, like so many other people, saw Christians as backward, ignorant, and passive people. I mean, the concept, the pioneers who lived and thought outside the box and lived in extraordinary ways just didn't come to mind when I thought about becoming a Christian. I thought, if you become a Christian, you're going to lose your individualism. You're going to forego creativity, excellence, passion, the ability to excel in life. However, this is not what God says. For God says in Genesis 1.27 that God created human beings to be God-like. Everybody say God-like. How many of you know God's not ordinary? He's definitely extraordinary. And according to Genesis 1.27, we were created to reflect his nature. If you look at the first man that God created, Adam, talk about an extraordinary man. Not only does Adam have the ability of naming 1.25 million species of animals, he's got the capacity to remember what he named each one of them without an iPad. Somebody says, yeah, but John, Adam lost those extraordinary abilities when he sinned in the garden. Well, obviously, you haven't read Romans 5.18 very carefully. Because Paul says in Romans 5.18, here it is in a nutshell. Just as one person, that would be Adam, did it all wrong and got us into all this trouble with sin and death. Another person, and his name is Jesus, did it right and got us out of it. But more than just getting us out of trouble, he got us into life. And I like to say extraordinary life. If you look at the early church, the early church was constantly having to convince people they were not superheroes or gods. 
I mean, Peter's got to look at a Roman officer, the most powerful military in the whole world at the time, and say, get up and stop worshiping me. I am not a superhero or a god. If you look at Paul and Barnabas, they had to convince every citizen in the entire city of Lystra that they were not superheroes or gods. If you look at all the citizens in Malta, they jumped to the conclusion that Paul was a superhero or a god. If you look at the citizens in Thessalonica, Greece, they reported on the evening news, hey, the men that have turned the world upside down have now come here to our city. They were known as people that turned the world upside down. If you look at the unbelievers in Jerusalem, the Bible said everyone, these are the unbelievers, had high regard for the believers. Now, is this the way it is today? Come on, I asked the question. I mean, think about it with me. When Hollywoods want to make a movie about an extraordinary person, do they immediately think Christian? Are we constantly having to convince people we're not superheroes or gods? No. So you know what that means? Something is really, really, really amiss. The fact is this, not only has God created you to live an extraordinary life, he has also empowered you to do so. It does not matter if you're in the business world, the educational world, the medical field, if you're in government or if you're in ministry, God has created you to live an extraordinary life in the realm of influence that he's called you to. Amen. So the first question we got to ask is how do we do it? Don't you think that's a good place to start? How do we do it? Would anybody like to know? Can I see a show of hands? Anybody like to know? You ready? You want to know? The grace of God. But now this is where the huge, and I mean huge, disconnect occurs in the American church. Three years ago, a nationwide survey was done all across the United States. Over 5,000 born-again Christians were polled in this survey. I am talking Bible-believing, Sunday morning, church-attending Christians. In the survey, the question was asked, give three or more definitions or descriptions of the grace of God. The overwhelming majority of the responses were this. Salvation, a free gift, forgiveness of sins, the love of God. I am so glad that Americans understand that we are saved by grace and only by grace. And you cannot earn that grace or merit it because it is God's free gift. And by the grace of God, our sins have been remitted. Thank God Americans understand that, correct? However, this is where the tragedy occurred in this survey. Only 2%, the actual figure was 1.9%. Of those over 5,000 that were surveyed said that grace was God's empowerment. However, this is exactly how God himself defines or describes his grace. He said in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 9 to the apostle Paul, My grace is all you need for my what? My what? Everybody say it. For my power works best in your weakness or human inability. Now, if you've got a red letter edition of the Bible where all the words of Jesus are in red and all the other words in the Bible are in black and you go to 2 Corinthians 12 verse 9, these words aren't black, they're red, which means they are not the words of the Apostle Paul, they are the words of God himself. So God refers to his grace as his power, yet only 2% of the American Christians understand that. How does the Apostle Peter define the grace of God? He says in 2 Peter chapter 1, grace be multiplied to you as his divine what? What's that? Has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So the apostle Peter defines the grace of God as his divine 
power, yet only 2% of the American Christians understand it. Are you tracking with me? Now let me be academic just for a couple minutes. Let's go back to the Greek word for grace because all of our English manuscripts come from the Greek manuscript. The Greek word for grace is the Greek word charis. Strong's defines this word as gift, favor, benefit, gracious, and liberality. If you take this initial initial definition of grace and you couple it together with selected scriptures in the book of Ephesians, Galatians, and Romans, you get the definition of grace the majority of the American Christians are familiar with, okay? However, Strong's doesn't stop there. He continues to find this Greek word as the divine influence upon the heart. Now look at this, with its reflection in the life. So you can see there is an outward reflection of what's done in the heart. That is the empowerment of grace. Are you with me? See, do you remember when Barnabas went to the churches in Antioch in Acts chapter 11? The Bible said he saw the grace of God upon the people. He didn't hear about the grace of God. He saw the empowerment that was reflected in their life. Are you with me? Another encyclopedia defines this Greek word as God's empowering presence in one's life. Now, my simple definition after years of prayer and study is this. God's empowerment. Listen carefully. God's empowerment that gives us the ability to go beyond our natural ability. Some of you need to write that down and think about it. God's empowerment that gives you the ability to go beyond your natural ability. Now, why is it such a tragedy that only 2% of the American Christians know this? Let me illustrate the tragedy with a hypothetical. Let's say we've done a little research and we discover a small tribe that lives in the bush in Africa. In our research, we discover for them to get fresh water, they've got to hike two miles every day to the nearest spring, get the water in these big containers and carry it on their heads back to their camp in the bush to give their people water. Whenever they need food, how many of you know the animals just don't walk through the camp and say, hi, I'm your dinner tonight, spear me. They have to hunt the animals and sometimes the kill may occur eight or nine miles away from their camp in the bush. So they've got to carry that 1,000, 1,500 pound antelope eight or nine miles back to their camp in the bush. Are you with me? The nearest village is over 50 miles away. So whenever they need medical supplies or other things they can't get in the bush, they've got to hike 50 miles to the nearest village, get the supplies and carry it back to their camp in the bush. So you know what we decide to do? Now look at the top line there of the definition of grace. We decide we're going to give them a gift. We're going to be favorable to them. We're going to benefit them. We're going to be gracious to them. We're going to be liberal to them. We decide we're going to buy them a brand new 2012 Range Rover. So we ship the Range Rover over to Africa. We park it outside the bush. We go into the bush, get the chief and the small tribe. We bring them out to the the parked Range Rover. And we say to the chief, this is our gift to you. We put the chief in the passenger seat. We fire up the vehicle. We say, chief, this Range Rover is amazing. It's got air conditioning in it. So when it's really blistering hot, push this button, you get a nice cozy 72 degrees. Not only that, we got a heater in this baby. So when it's really cold at night, push this button, you get a nice comfortable 73 degrees. Not only that, chief, we got an XM satellite radio. You know what that means? You can hear the New England Patriots play every single Sunday. He gets excited about that one. Not only that, chief, 
we got a DVD player in this baby. So we whip out some movies like Avatar, Night at the Museum. We plug in Avatar. Chief is amazed by the blue people that come on the screen. And we say, Chief, we got a CD player in this baby. So we whip out some United Hillsong CDs. We plug one in. He's overwhelmed by the worship that fills the vehicle. We tell him about the power windows and some of the other things. And then we get out of the vehicle. The chief is completely overwhelmed. He says, what do I give you for this? Oh, no, no, chief, you could never buy this. This is our gift to you because we love you so much. So we leave. But then a couple months after we've left, we discover something. They're still walking two miles every day to get the water and carrying the water back. They're still carrying the heavy animals. They're still walking over 50 miles to the nearest village and hauling the supplies back. Why? Because we neglected to tell the chief that the primary functional definition of the Range Rover is transportation. Well, we have neglected to tell the church that the primary functional definition of the grace of God is his empowerment. You say, John, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm not clapping at all right now because you said the primary definition. Oh, yeah, I said the primary definition. I had something happen with with me three years ago that I will never, ever forget. I was walking around my house. I'd been praying for about 30 minutes in the spirit. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit asked me a question I'll never forget the rest of my life. I'm praying. Lisa and the boys are gone. And all of a sudden, I hear the Spirit of God ask me this question. John, son, how did I introduce grace in my book? the New Testament. Now, as an author that's written 15 books, that question really meant something to me. Because anytime I'm writing a book and I introduce a new subject that I know the majority of the population is not familiar with, I got to give the primary functional definition when I introduce it. Later on in the book, I can give a second and a third and a fourth definition, but I got to give the primary when I introduce it. Are you following me? Okay, let me just make sure we're all on the same page. If we're writing a letter to the chief in Africa, do you know what we're going to say? In the very first paragraph of that letter, chief, we're giving you a Range Rover. Its primary function is transportation. Now you don't have to carry heavy water two miles every day. Just drive there and haul it back. Now you don't have to walk 50 miles in the nearest village. Just drive there in the 10th of time and haul the supplies back. Because the chief has never seen a vehicle before. Then in the second paragraph, I tell them about the air conditioning, the heater, third paragraph, XM satellite radio, fourth paragraph, DVD player and the CD player. But I'm going to give them the primary functional definition when I introduce it, correct? So the Holy Spirit asked me, he said, son, how did I introduce grace in my book? I said, God, I don't know. And I really didn't know. So I ran to my computer in that time of prayer. I jumped on my Bible program and I found out how God introduces grace in the New Testament. Do you want to see it? John 1 16, here it is. And of his, now his there is Jesus's. And of Jesus's fullness, we have all received and grace for grace. Now, I don't talk like that, do you? Do you say grace for grace? I don't know. I don't talk like that. You don't talk like that. So I went to a language expert in Athens, Greece, okay? This guy was not only born in Greece, speaking Greek as his mother tongue, but he has studied ancient Greek. His name is Panos Zachariah. And I wrote to him and I said, Panos, would you tell me what is being communicated in John 1 16 when the apostle writes grace for grace? He wrote me back and he said, John, in order to understand this, you have to understand the way the ancient Greek people spoke. He said, what he's saying here is, this is the overflow, the abundance, the completeness of what grace has done for us. 
What is the overflow or the completeness or the abundance of what the grace of God has done for you and me? It's given us the fullness of Jesus. Okay, you're not getting this. If you were getting this, you would be going, wow. Okay, let me help you understand. What, what's the high school around here? What's the biggest high school around here? Tell me, tell me the biggest high school. East Providence. Okay. Thank you very much. East Providence High School. Okay. Let's go to East Providence High School. Let's not, let's go to the varsity basketball team. We're getting ready to start varsity basketball, right? Let's not go to the five starters on the varsity basketball team at East Providence. Let's go to the kid that sits the bench and he only plays if there's two minutes left and they're 30 points behind or 30 points ahead. Okay. And so we look at this kid and we say to him, Hey, We have the new scientific means that we can put on you the fullness, the full ability of LeBron James. What do you think that kid's going to say? Dude, 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 put it on me right now. And what's he going to do? He's going to start for East Providence. East Providence is going to win the state tournament. And he's going to the NBA and he's going to be MVP a few years. What if I look at a struggling businessman and I say to the struggling businessman, hey, we have the new scientific means to put on you the fullness, the full ability of Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, and Donald Trump all put together. What do you think he's going to say? Dude, now, lay it on me now. And what's he going to do? He's going to start thinking of ways of investing he's never thought of before. Well, Grace hadn't given us the fullness of LeBron James, Tiger Woods, Steve, Gay, uh, Steve, Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, Donald Trump, Bach, Beethoven, Albert Einstein. Grace has given you and I the fullness of Jesus Christ himself personally. That's power. I said, that's power, baby. So God does not introduce grace in the New Testament as forgiveness of sins. Does it forgive our sins? You better believe it, but that's way later in the book. He doesn't even introduce it as a free gift. Is it a free unmerited gift? You better believe it, but that's much later in the book. He doesn't even introduce it as our salvation. Is it our salvation? You better believe it, but that's much later in the book. He introduces grace as the empowerment that gives us the fullness of Jesus Christ. That's why I said the primary functional definition. See, look what Peter said. I showed you this verse just a minute ago. Peter says, it's his divine power, which we established to be grace, has given to us all things that pertain to extraordinary life. Now, Peter goes on to say, look down at the end, at the blue, the last two lines. Peter said, this grace makes us to be partakers. Now, look at this. Partakers of the divine nature. Yeah. All right, did you just get that? The grace of God has made you and I to be partakers of the divine nature. What does the word nature mean? It is, the word nature is the essential qualities or character of a person. Do you understand what grace has done for you and I? It has given us the fullness of the essential qualities and character of Jesus Christ himself. This is why John the apostle writes in his little book, when he was in his 80s, as Jesus is. So are we in this world. He doesn't say as Jesus is, so we're going to be in heaven one day. As he is, 
so are we in this world. That's what grace has done for you and I. See, this is why I get so angry. And I mean so angry. When some preacher stands up with this ridiculous, false, humble voice and goes, well, you know, we Christians, we're really no different than sinners. We're just forgiven. I think, turn the guy's mic off. I mean, run out of the building. He's filling the air with a doctrine of a demon. He's disempowering the church. I mean, even nature teaches us better than this. Have you ever heard of a lion giving birth to a squirrel? ever heard of a thoroughbred racehorse giving birth to an unworthy worm? The Bible says we are his offspring. We are bone of his bone. We are flesh of his flesh. Beloved, listen to what the Bible says. Beloved, now, not later, now are we the sons and daughters of God as he is. Mm. So are we in this world. That's what grace has done for us. I said, that's what grace has done for us. This is why the apostle John says in his exact same letter, those who say they live in God should live their lives just like Jesus did. Woo! Just like Jesus did. Are you thinking about that? How in the world are we supposed to do that? Now, let, let, let me help you. Over the next several minutes, I'm going to ask several questions. And the answer to 99% of these questions is grace. Got it? All right, so let's try this again. Those who say they live their lives and God should live their lives just like Jesus did. How in the world are we supposed to do that? Grace. Oh, you guys are so smart. <laughs> so we better talk about how he lived. If we're supposed to live just like he lived, then we better talk about how he lived. All right, first of all, how did Jesus live? He lived in extraordinary godliness and purity. Okay? The Apostle Paul writes to us and tells us the acceptable. Everybody say, acceptable Acceptable. way to serve God. Look what he says in 2 Corinthians 7. He says, let us purify ourselves. Notice he doesn't say God's going to purify you. Other translations say, cleanse ourselves from most things. Why, why now, what, uh, what? Oh, everything. That makes body or soul unclean and let us be completely holy. And Peter says, as he is holy, that's the way we're supposed to be. How in the world are we supposed to do that? Oh, you guys are so smart. Let me help you understand what I'm talking about. When I was in high school, I was a very effective sinner. What does that mean? My nature was to sin. I did it quite effectively. Okay. So as a very effective sinner, one day my dad takes me to see this movie as a young teenager. Okay. I'm in junior high and this movie is entitled, it's on the big screen. The Ten Commandments, starring Charlton Heston, right? I'm sitting there watching this movie as a very effective sinner, right? And all of a sudden, this scene comes on, on the big screen, where the earth opens up and swallows alive into hell, Dathan and his buddies. When that scene came on, I started repenting like crazy. I was like, oh my God, I'm not doing that anymore. Okay, I'm a Lord, I'm, I'm not doing, I didn't say Lord. I said, God, I'm not doing that again. I'm like done with that, God. Okay, I won't do that again. And, and I won't hang around those guys anymore, God. And, and, and can I please have another chance on that one, God? And I'm gonna tell you something. I left that movie theater a completely changed man. Hold on, hold on. And it lasted for about a week. Then I was back to all my sin. Why? Because I had repentance 
but no grace. You got to understand, I was a Catholic boy. I have no idea what repentance is, but baby, I was repenting, okay? I had repentance, but no grace. So then in my college fraternity at Purdue University, I'm playing varsity tennis at Purdue University. One of my fraternity brothers who's a phenomenal athlete comes up to my room and shares the campus crusade for spiritual laws. Okay, here I'm a Catholic boy. He's sharing campus crusade for spiritual laws with me, right? After the fourth law, I accept Jesus Christ as my Lord. I'm completely now a child of God. You know what's interesting? I kept living in the same sin I was living in before I got saved. Why? I, no, I didn't have any teaching. I had no idea what I had. I'm like the chief with the vehicle. Okay? So then a few months later, or a few years later, I'm reading in the Bible one day. You know how a verse really jumps up off the page at you? And this verse jumps up off the page. Pursue holiness, without which no one's going to see the Lord. I went, oh my gosh. Okay, I want to see God. I want to see God. Okay, I got to be holy. Now I became a legalist. I am beating people up everywhere. Dude, dude, you can't do that, dude. You do that and you like never see God. And I I mean, I'm making everybody uncomfortable. I'm making my wife uncomfortable. My friends are uncomfortable. And then God in his mercy, thank God for his mercy. One day speaks to me and says, son, holiness is not a product of your flesh. It is a work of my grace. Then all of a sudden I realized grace is God's empowering presence that gives me the ability to do what I otherwise couldn't do in my own ability. And that is to cleanse myself from everything that makes body or soul unclean because this is the acceptable way to serve God. That's why the writer of Hebrews says a couple of verses later, let us have what? Shout it. Grace. By which, in other words, grace empowers us that we may serve God acceptably. Look up at me, everybody. You know what's really scary? 98% of the Christians in America are trying to live godly in their own ability. How do you know that, John? You can't have anything from God unless you believe. Right? And you cannot believe what you do not know. So if 98% of the Christians in America don't even know that grace is God's empowerment, that means 98% of the Christians in America are trying to live godly in their own ability. Now, you know what happens if you try to live godly in your own ability? One of two things happens. Either you become a hypocritical legalist, or you become a loosey-goosey, make up some strange doctrine of grace covers all the sin I love, standing a very thin ice person. But when you understand grace is God's empowerment, you become one happy dude. This is why the Apostle Paul goes on to write in the same neighborhood in this book of Corinthians, we beg you who have received God's grace to not let it be wasted. Whoa, hold it. How could you ever waste the grace of God we've preached in America? Let me illustrate America's grace. I know I'm not quite living like I should, but thank God for his grace. That's not grace, that's scary. How could you ever waste that grace? But when you understand grace is God's empowerment, you could understand how you could waste it just if it's 10 years from now, 2022. We decide to go down to Africa to visit our friends that we gave the Land Rover to, right? We go down there. Strangely enough, the Range Rover's parked in the exact same place we delivered it in 2012. Grass has grown up all around it. Dust covers it. We open up, force one, one of the doors open, and the odometer says exactly what it said when we delivered it 10 years earlier. What do we say to each other? They wasted the gift they gave us 10 years ago. Or we wait, they wasted the gift we gave them 10 years ago. That's what Paul means when he says, don't waste the grace of God. Sure is quiet in this Presbyterian church. You still here? Okay. How else did Jesus live? He walked, listen, he met the needs of humanity. 
He healed the sick. He cleansed the disease. He got people delivered that were in bondage. And then do you know what he says to us? As the father sent me, now I'm sending you. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Whoa, 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 whoa. How are we supposed to do that? Heal the sick, the diseased. How are we supposed to do that? By what? Guys are so smart. Okay. Look what Acts 4.33 says. Look at this carefully. With great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. Do you notice God equates great power with great grace? Why? Because grace is God's power. Somebody says, yeah, but John, that's the apostles. I'm not an apostle. Well, let me tell you about this restaurant worker. Okay, this guy's name is Stephen. He is not an apostle, not a prophet, not an evangelist, not a pastor, not a teacher. He's a, rest, he's a busboy in a restaurant. Okay? Look what the Bible says about this waiter in a restaurant. He's a busboy in a restaurant. Stephen, a man full of God's what? Grace. What? Say it. Performed amazing miracles and signs among the people. How did he do it? Through the free gift of grace. Now, you know what's really sad? We get people saved so easily by grace. We tell them it's a free gift, right? Get saved. It's a free gift, right? And then they get in the church a few years, and they, they have this thought. I didn't read my four chapters today. I didn't read, pray my hour. I didn't do my 21-day Daniel fast. I can't get this person healed. You just fell from grace because you reduced it down to your works of how much you pray, fast, and read. Selah. How else did Jesus live? Jesus walked in extraordinary wisdom, understanding, insight, ingenuity, and creativity. Now, this is where I want to focus on the rest of the night. Okay? This is the part of the Gospels that amazes me. I look at Jesus, the creativity of his wisdom astounded people. I mean, it literally grabbed the attention of the executives and businessmen and women of his day. It literally put to silence his enemies. It caused people to marvel. Where did his wisdom come from? Luke 2.40 tells us, And the child Jesus grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom. There's the wisdom. And the grace of God was upon him. Hey, look up at me. If grace is just forgiveness of sins and a ticket to heaven like we've taught in the American church, then why in the world did Jesus need grace? He didn't commit a sin and he certainly didn't need a ticket to heaven. But when you understand though Jesus was the son of God, yet he had to strip himself of his divine privileges and walk this earth as the son of man, therefore he needed grace's empowerment to walk in the wisdom he walked in. Look at his wisdom. It was absolutely amazing. One time it literally saved a woman's life. These religious zealots catch this woman in the act of adultery. Okay? They drag her out half naked into the open temple square. First of all, I want to say, where is the guy? Okay? So they throw her in front of Jesus half naked. And they go, all right, Jesus. Moses said, stoner, what do you say? Now, I love the creativity of the wisdom of God that comes out of Jesus' mouth. Jesus goes, okay, boys, let the first one without sin cast the first stone. Then he gets down in the dirt and he starts writing down all their secret girlfriends' names. Hannah, Isabel, Rachel, Isabel. When they see the girl they've been sleeping with, they drop their rocks and get out of Dodge quick, baby. His wisdom saved her life. In another situation, Jesus is walking right by the seashore. There is a professional fishing company having the worst day of their career. Can you imagine? Just think of it like a retail store. You own a big retail store like Target and you don't make one sale all day. 
That's the kind of business day this professional fishing company's having. One encounter with the grace of God and Jesus, it goes from the worst day of their career to the most prosperous day of their career. Now, hold on, hold on. Jesus is not even a fisherman. He's a carpenter, but he's got grace. I mean, he knows where to find donkeys without having to go to Craigslist or eBay. He pays taxes without an accountant. I mean, he knows there is a thief on his staff before the guy ever manifests. Why? Because he had grace. So in essence, what did the grace of God give Jesus the ability to do? It gave him the ability to change the society he was a part of. Okay, he walks into this city and meets up with the syndicate leader. The Godfather. Hey, Jesus. You come to my town, eh? One encounter with the grace of God on Jesus. And Zacchaeus goes, I'm never stealing again. Can you imagine how much safer that city became because the Godfather just said, I am never going to steal again? The leader of organized crime just said, I'm never stealing again. Not only that, before Jesus even opens his mouth because of the grace of God that's on him, Zacchaeus goes, hey, boss, hey, boss. Everybody I've stolen from, I'll restore back 400%. Okay, boss? Thus stimulating the economy. And it wasn't with paper, printed, monopoly, government money that we did four years ago. It was actually real money. He goes into another community and here's a young man completely insane out of his mind. of this young man's life, the government's going to have to give him food and clothing. And a lot of clothing because he keeps ripping it off. (laughs) One encounter with the grace of God on Jesus. And now the government never needs to give him another penny. Not only that, the ten cities of the Decapolis heard the kingdom of God through that guy. And oral tradition says he later on became the bishop of those ten cities' churches. Until the day he passed. All because one man met up with grace. What about all the other blind people and the deaf people and the mute people and the crippled people that the government was having to give subsidy to? Are you, are you following me? One encounter with the grace of God and Jesus. The government wouldn't have to give them a thing anymore. They could use the money to de- develop the cities and communities better in other ways. And they became productive citizens in society. And you know what the Bible says? If you were to add up everything Jesus did in those three and a half years, the world of books couldn't contain it. And then Jesus said, as the Father sent me, now I am sending you. And by the way, the works that I've done, you're going to do, and greater works than these. Why are we even doing the works he did, let alone the greater works? Because we don't know what we have in the free gift of God's grace. You know what we've been? We've been like the people in Africa. And we're all standing around a vehicle and we go, Free gift. Free gift. Let's preach messages about it. free gift. Let's sing songs about the free gift. Let's write books about the free gift. Oh, it's raining. Let's get in. We're covered. We're covered by the free gift. Let's write songs about that. Let's write books. Let's preach sermons. Now, and we never drive it. Now, I am not mocking 
believe me, how thankful I am that we are forgiven and saved and that grace is God's unmerited gift. But can we please drive it? So in essence, what does the grace of God give us the ability to do? It gives us the ability to rule in life. Everybody say that with me, rule in life. life. Say it again. Say it like you mean it. Romans 5, 17, all who receive God's abundant grace, that's everybody that's saved, and are freely put right with him will rule in life through Christ. Notice it says rule in life. Notice it doesn't say rule in the next life. Now, my sad observation has been, in all my travels, is that most Christians are ruled by life. They're not ruling in life. What does it mean to rule in life by the grace of God? It means you rise above the norm. You break out of the status quo. You no longer see life as an eight to five job, get a paycheck every other week, someday retire, then die of a disease and go to heaven. What a pathetic way to live. You have been created for so much more. It means we become influencers because we know we're the head and not the tail. Hold on. Where I come from in Colorado, heads lead normally and tails follow. My sad observation has been society leads and the church follows. What does it mean to rule in life by the grace of God? I'm running out of time. I got to close this down. Okay. Let me just be practical. Let me be practical. If you're a public school teacher, you by the gift of God's grace on your life, you are coming up with such new and innovative ways of communicating wisdom and knowledge to your public high school students that all the other public educators in your school system are scratching their heads going, where does she keep coming up with these ideas from? It means if you're a police detective, you are solving the crimes before anybody else on the force because you know where to find the evidence because you know where the criminals are going to be and you're solving neighborhood problems before anybody else can on the entire force and all the other people on the force are scratching their heads going, where does he keep getting these ideas from? means if you're in the medical field, you're coming up with such new startling medical discoveries on how to treat sickness and disease that all the other people in the medical field are scratching their heads going... Where does she keep coming up with these ideas from? It means if you're a businessman, you know when to buy, when to sell. You know when to get in, you know when to get out. Your marketing ideas are so innovative and creative that you're creating the market share, not following the market share because your business is booming when others are faltering because you've got... So in essence, what does the grace of God give us the ability to do? It gives us the ability to distinguish ourselves. Say that with me, distinguish myself. Look at Daniel chapter 6, verse 3. Then this Daniel began distinguishing himself. Do you notice it does not say God began to distinguish him? Come on, can I get some affirmation on that one? It does not say God began to distinguish him. It says he began to distinguish himself. Every translation will read that way. Among the commissioners and the satraps, that's the other government leaders in Babylon, because he possessed an extraordinary spirit. That's a New American Standard Bible. Now, I want you to think with me. Look up at me. Look up at me. Everybody look up at me. Daniel and his three friends come out of this little country. They're brought into the most powerful nation in the world, Babylon. Some of you think America is something. Some of you think Boston or Massachusetts is something. Let me tell you, yeah, we're good, but we are nothing compared to Babylon. Babylon ruled the entire world. You understand, Babylon was number one economically, socially, politically, governmentally, in the arts, in science, in education. You know, we're number like 16 in the world in education. Okay, so we're nothing compared to Babylon. Are you following me? 
Daniel's three friends come out of this little country. They're brought into the most powerful nation in the world, Babylon. After the king of Babylon interviews Daniel and his three friends, the king declares and determines they're 10 times smarter, 10 times wiser, 10 times more innovative and creative than the best leaders in Babylon. And Daniel wasn't interviewing for a position in seminary. Daniel started implementing things that they had never thought of before and it started working. He starts getting promoted until he's promoted above everybody. And do you know what Jesus said? Of all the human beings that have ever been born up to this very day, there is no one greater than John the Baptist. Which means John was greater than Daniel. Now don't try to compare the two. John is a minister, Daniel's a government leader, but John is greater. But then Jesus says, but the least in the kingdom of God is greater than John. Which means the least in the kingdom of God is greater than Daniel. Now there's been about one billion Christians in the kingdom of God from the day of the resurrection until present day. If you happen to be the least of all those billion, if you're the least in the kingdom of God, if you had to be least, just think, if you're number 999,999,999, and if you are, I really want to meet you, you're greater than John, which makes you greater than Daniel. So why aren't you distinguishing yourself? Because we don't know what we have in the free gift of God's grace. Okay, okay, okay. Can we talk about distinguishing ourselves for a minute? Can we just talk about it for just a minute? Just a minute. What does Jesus say over and over again in the Gospels? You are the light of the world. What do lights do? They shine. Listen to Isaiah's words. Arise, shine. Listen, for that light has come. The glory of the Lord's risen, not descended, In other words, we're going to wake up to what we have in us because the Bible says we have this treasure in earthen vessels. The glory of the Lord's risen upon you for behold, darkness is going to cover the earth and gross darkness the people. That's not heaven. That's here. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and gross darkness the people, but the glory of the Lord's going to rise on you and unbelievers are going to be drawn to your light. What do lights do? They distinguish themselves among the darkness. If you walk outside tonight, it's a clear night. What? What? Darkness covers the sky. What do the stars do? They distinguish themselves among the darkness. Okay. What has been our mentality of being the light of the world? Come on, let's be honest. Gut level honest. What do we think when when we hear Jesus say, you're the light of the world? You know what we think in America? We think this, this is being the light of the world. I go to work, I go to school, I treat everybody really nice, and I can quote John 3.16, and I hold up a John 3.16 poster at a Celtics game. (laughs) I'm being the light of the world. What if Daniel would have adopted our mindset? He would have walked into the government offices of Babylon, he would have looked at the Babylonian leaders, the governors and the satraps, the government officials, and he would say, guys... The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. That is Psalm 23, verse 1. You know what the government leaders would have said when Daniel went to pray at lunchtime? Because Daniel prayed every lunchtime. They would have said, we hope the loony bird prays all day. He's so positively weird. Why did they make it a law that he could not pray? Think. 
because he was 10 times smarter than them, 10 times wiser, 10 times more innovative, 10 times more creative. He's coming up with ideas they had never thought of before. They're all scratching their heads and they're going, we have been trained by the finest teachers, the most knowledgeable leaders and scientists and teachers in the whole world. He's come out of this little country. Where does he keep coming up with these ideas? Oh, it must be this thing called prayer. Let's make a law against it. And we thought it was treating people nice and quoting a scripture. But listen to Jesus' words. Let your light shine that men may see your good works, that they're wrought in God, not hear your good scriptures. I have a friend named Ben Gibbert, vice president of Chrysler Corporation. Did you hear what I just said? I didn't say vice president of Annie's Muffins. (laughs) He and I are having dinner at the Ritz-Carlton in Detroit two years ago. He looks at me and he said, John, he's a really good friend of mine. He's African-American brother. He said, he said, John, I've never told you this, but before I was vice president of Chrysler Corporation, I was on the senior design team for General Motors. He said, now that's a big team, the senior design team. And because we are such an elite team, an important team to General Motors, they do a cost production analysis on each of us every year. What is a cost production analysis? It's basically this, how much our innovations save General Motors and how much our innovations make General Motors. They add those two figures together and that's each employee on the senior design team's cost production analysis. He said, John, I was reading in Daniel chapter one that Daniel was 10 times wiser, 10 times more innovative, 10 times more creative than their best leaders in Babylon. He said, I threw my Bible down and said, God, he's under the law. I'm under grace. I should be at least 10 times better than anybody on the senior design team. Now, hold on. He said, I started praying. He said, the end of that year came, the number two guy on the entire senior design team for General Motors, his cost production analysis was $35 million. He said, mine was $350 million. (laughs) Jim and Kelly Townsend, Jim's running the PowerPoint. Kelly's with me somewhere in here tonight, husband and wife. Their son, Tyler, two years ago, he's 11 years old. He hears me speaking on this. Tyler looks like toothpicks two years ago. He's 11. You know how small 11-year-olds are. He's on the citywide Colorado Springs citywide football league, okay? 11 and 12-year-olds. You know how much bigger 12-year-olds are than 11-year-olds, right? Tyler hears me preaching on this very thing. He turns to his dad and mom and goes, shoot, I'm going to be 10 times better by the grace of God. The end of that season came. The number two guy on the entire league rushed for 490-some yards. Tyler rushed for 900, almost 900 yards. Okay, whoa, whoa, whoa. The number two rusher on the entire league had seven touchdowns. Tyler had 17 touchdowns. You know what he said to his dad? He said, Dad, Grace kicks butt. (laughs) Now, I'm going to tell you about another guy. Good friend of mine. He's coaching the varsity girls basketball team for the biggest division of schools in the state of Minnesota for 20 years. For 18 years, he tried his hardest with recruiting techniques and everything to win the state championship. He couldn't do it. Now he starts believing in the grace of God. God speaks to him as he's praying. God says, instead of an hour and a half on the floor, do 45 minutes in the locker room, 45 minutes on the floor. 45 minutes in the locker room, you do a a Bible study and prayer time with the girls. Okay. He said, John, we won the last two state championships. Hold on. He said, in the most recent one, 
Our girls missed 12 layups in the first half. They all came into the locker room laughing. They said, okay, God's going to do this so gloriously. What happened was they made so many three points, they beat the other team they were in the state championship game. 18 years he tried it. Two years he believed. I look at, I look at what happened in 2008. And I think we missed a great, great moment. Because that's when the world went into trouble financially. And because we were so tied to the world, we went into trouble financially. That is when we should have been coming up with the million and the billion dollar ideas to help people. Do you think all the resources on the earth just raptured in 2008? Do you think they just flew up into outer space somewhere? Do you think all the money just left the earth? No. Do you know what happens when a recession occurs? New avenues are created for financial flow. That's when we should be coming up with the million billion dollar ideas to help people. I mean, I look at Amy Sibley McPherson. Somebody should have told her that you cannot build and sustain a 5,000-seat auditorium in downtown L.A. in the days of the Depression, not the recession. When my grandfather worked three jobs, moonlighted, put bread on the table, she built and sustains a 5,000-seat auditorium. And Hollywood actors would sneak into her Sunday night illustrated sermons to get ideas from the props she built and they would use her ideas on Hollywood set. Charlie Chaplin was one of them. Now, compare that to what I saw four years ago. I walk into my hotel room. Remember four years ago when American Idol was the program? I walk into my hotel room. I turn on Christian television, which I rarely do. And I'm not saying that. I just, I don't have, I don't have time for TV because I'm too busy. But I turn on Christian TV and there is a guy singing Amazing Grace in front of 2,000 people in Nashville. When he's done, the spotlights go over to a table with three judges. And the one judge starts going, well, your inflection could have been a little better. Your pitch could have been better at this point. I collapsed, literally hit the, hit the floor. My knees gave out and I hit the floor. I said, my God. You created the Rocky Mountains, the universe, the supernovas, the nebulas, the sea creatures. You live on the inside of us. And we're going to American Idol for our inspiration? Why? Because we don't know what we have in the grace of God. I could tell you all these stories, but the best one I need to tell you is my story. A lot of you may not know this. But my very worst subjects in high school were English, creative writing, and foreign language. I am not kidding. It used to take me four hours to write a one-page paper. My English teachers would pass me so they wouldn't have to put up with me another year. You think I'm kidding. You know what I scored on the SAT in English? You know what the SATs are, right? The highest score I ever scored on the SAT was 370. Yeah, some of you know. Let me help you understand this. That's 370 out of 800. In all my travels, I've only met one human being that scored lower than me on the SAT in English. Okay? So when God comes to me in 1991 and says, son, I want you to write. I said, okay, you have so many of us kids now on the earth, you're getting us mixed up with one another. God, you don't want me writing, talk to my English teachers. 
So I did nothing for 10 months. 10 months later, two different women from two different states within two weeks of each other approached me and gave me the exact same words. They said, John Bevere, if you don't write what God is giving you to write, he's going to give the messages to somebody else and you will be judged. When the second woman said it two weeks after the first woman, the second woman from the state of Texas said it two weeks after the first woman from Florida, the fear of God hit me. I said, I better write. So I got a notebook piece of paper. This is 1991. Remember, we didn't have iPads. I got a notebook piece of paper and I wrote up on the top contract. I wrote a contract with God. I said, God, I think you're making a huge mistake. You have far better writers in the church. I can't write. So I need grace. And I signed the contract. Now the books are in the multi-millions. They are in 62 languages all over the world. I was just in Korea a couple months ago. I found out. Walk into it, just a simple little press release. There's 32 reporters there from 32 different companies. I'm talking magazines, five television stations, and newspapers. And one of them was the third largest newspaper in the nation. And they did a front story on the life section. Okay? I find out, unbeknownst to me, my book's been on the bestseller list for the past two years. It sold almost 300,000 copies in Korean. One book. I go to Brazil a couple months ago. I find out one of my books is number five seller in the entire nation. I go to Bulgaria last October with my wife. I found out I'm the number one author in the entire nation of Bulgaria. The number two author has sold half as many books. I go to Ukraine last May. I find out Ukraine, I'm the number two author in the entire nation. I go and speak at a conference in Eastern Europe with 7,000 leaders from 60 nations. I'm talking nations like Abidjan, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, Armenia, Iran, Iraq. I'm in this meeting and a man walks up to me. He's got tears pouring down his face. He said, I pastor 1,500 people in, in Siberia. Your books are helping me pastor my church. After I spoke that night, two men walk up to me. They said, we are pastors from Uzbekistan. We have been in jail for the last two years for our faith, but your books are helping us pastor our church. Then the next day, a delegation walks up to me from Iran. I said, we are the publishers from Iran. We published your, published your books in Farsi, the official language of Iran. Every time we publish your, one of your books, we print 10,000 beta Satans. We just did it in Farsi. Every book is gone. You are probably the most read Christian author in all of Iran. Do you know what I want to do? I want to find my high school English teachers. <laughs> and I want to say... Can I give you the 14 books I've written by the grace of God? Watch them pass out, revive them, and get them saved. Why? Because it distinguishes me in their eyes for the glory of Jesus. They know John Bevere can't write. I was a terrible public speaker. Terrible. Oh yeah, I got proof. One of the first times I preached... After Lisa and I got married 30 years ago, she's sitting in the front row. And five minutes into my message, she falls asleep. And she sleeps the entire message. Her best friend sitting next to her was a girl named Amy Storr. She is now a pastor's wife in California. Amy, in five minutes, goes into such deep sleep, I'm watching drool come out of the side of her mouth. 
Now I speak in front of 5,000 people, 10,000 people, 20,000 people. In last November, 35,000 seat sanctuary in Surabaya, Indonesia, and three services on Sunday. People go, do you get nervous before you speak to that many people? I go, no. They go, you don't? I don't know. Now, originally, initially they think I'm being arrogant. I'm not. Because I look at him and say, hey, I know how bad I am. And if grace doesn't show up, we're all in big trouble. But grace always shows up. This is why the Apostle Paul says, the Apostle Paul says, not many mighty, not many noble, not many strong, not many wise are called. Why? Because the mighty, the noble, the wise, and the strong will depend on their own ability. Think about it. If you're 10% smarter than the unbeliever you're working next to, why do you need God's grace? But Paul was one of the noble ones who said, I call on all my nobility and my wisdom a bunch of poop because I want the resurrection power of his grace upon my life. This is why Paul said, I am what I am by the grace of God. Let me tell you something. You are not who you are because of who you were born to, because of what ethnic group you belong to, because of where you were educated, because of what side of the tracks you grew up on. You are who you are by the grace of God. Amen. Did you get something out of this tonight? Amen. 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 Every head bowed, every eye closed, nobody moving around in this building, nobody even moving. Don't even think about moving, please. This is the most important part of the entire service. Father, in the name of Jesus, I preach what you've commanded me to preach. And I thank you, Holy Spirit, for your faithfulness. Now I'm asking, Lord God, draw men and women to Jesus. In spirit of the Lord, you may do whatever you desire. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, let me make this statement really clear. You could never live the life that I've preached to you tonight unless you're first saved by grace. The Bible makes it absolutely clear that every human being that walks the face of this earth was born as a slave. Yeah, that's right. You were born as a slave. I was born as a slave. Slave of what? Slave of sin. That's why we needed a savior. God sent his son 2,000 years ago, born of a woman, making him 100% man, but he was fathered by the Holy Spirit, making him 100% God. Therefore, he was free from the curse of sin you and I were born under. Jesus walked this earth perfectly for 33 years, and he, as the only innocent human being that has ever lived, went to the cross, and he bore your judgment and my judgment. He shed every drop of his blood to pay the price for our judgment. He suffered, he died, they buried him. But because he himself lived a perfect life, God the Father raised him from the dead once those claims of justice were satisfied for you and me. And now Jesus is seated at the right hand of majesty on high and God himself has made a decree and said that any human being on the face of this earth that receives Jesus Christ as their Lord, he then becomes their savior. A miracle is done at that moment. And that person goes that moment from being a slave to an extraordinary child of God. John, you said the word Lord. I hear it a lot in church, but what does it mean? Okay, hold on. We're going to get you free in a minute, honey. Just, just, just. Somebody calm her down. She can. 
Now, you spirit, quiet. You're not going to torment her. She belongs to God. In the name of Jesus, you're not disrupting anybody from getting saved. All right, it's all right. Leave her alone. She's going to be fine. I just told the spirit to be quiet. All right, now listen carefully. I hear the word Lord, John, a lot in the church. What does it mean? Because I don't hear it in society very much. The word Lord means he becomes supreme in authority in your life. It carries the meaning of ownership. This is the best way I know how to describe it. When a woman walks down an aisle of a church, she's got a white dress on. The wedding march is playing. You know what that girl's saying? She's saying, goodbye, Jeff. Goodbye, Jim. Goodbye, Jason. She's saying goodbye to all of her old boyfriends. She's saying, this is the one and only man I'm giving myself to the rest of my life. That doesn't make her a perfect wife that first day, even that first week or that first year or even the first 50 years. It means she's given her entire heart to that man. When you give Jesus Christ the lordship of your life, the ownership of your life, it doesn't make you perfect outwardly the first day, week, or even year. It just means you've given your entire heart to him. There are so many people in America that think this way. They think all I have to do is just believe Jesus is the son of God. That's enough to make me a Christian. Hey, the demons believe that they even tremble, but they're not going to heaven. You've got to give him the ownership of your life. Thou shalt confess the Lord Jesus, the owner Jesus. Think it that way. You've got to change from being a slave of sin to giving your life freely and voluntarily to his lordship. So here's my final question, and I want you to answer this question, not out loud, but make sure you answer it in your head. Listen to my question and answer it carefully. Who owns your life? Jesus. 